Good. My name is James, one of the pastors here. Uh, if this is one of your first Sundays or you've been visiting, really glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, we are in the middle, as many of you know, in a series where we are looking at some of the bigger issues, what we're calling the elephants in the room of, of where we live, where we work. And we've been talking about how do we as believers navigate these? How do we as believers, um, you know, be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Um, oftentimes, the, the motivation of this series has been from conversations with you where you're like, I want to share my faith at work. I want to share Jesus. But, but oftentimes, uh, what people perceive I am because of my views on so-called you know, same-sex relationships, transgender, all those issues, I can't even get to Jesus. So I don't even know, how to, I don't even know what my answers are. I, I need help navigating these issues. So that's why we're doing this series. Uh, really excited about about it. It's been really fruitful, even for me. So today, though, we're coming to the topic of uh, transgender and gender dysphoria. This is a uh, very intense and intensifying uh, issue in our day. So here's the posture and the question I want to ask on this is, how is it we should respond with love to people whose experience of their gender doesn't fit their biological sex? That is really the issue. We need, we need a uh, better understanding as a church. That, that's the first thing I want to do is help us really get a clear picture of what, what's happening. Uh, also, we need a better understanding biblically on what, what God says gender is, its purpose, uh, what's gender for and how God's designed it. And then we need to understand gender in light of what we've been talking about in this series is our worldview, namely that there's brokenness in all these things, that we have disordered desires, that we have, we have a brokenness, that the, the, the world is subject to futility. So we need to understand gender in light of our creation narrative, fall narrative, you know, redemption narrative, all that. The second thing we need to do, especially on this one, is we need to uh, ask, what does love look like towards the sexual and moral revolution driven particularly by the media and uh, what I would say, not all, but some of the LGBTQ activists in, in wanting to normalize and really push uh, this agenda and, and just make it how things are. So we need to have a loving response to the first group. And I do think there's a second group. I don't think they're lumped. So we'll talk about that. But we need, we need to have a voice. The church cannot be silent on the ideology behind the moral and sexual revolution. So we need to talk about that. What does love look like in this case, biblically? Uh, and so that's where we're going. So the three points, we're gonna, uh, number one, a better understanding. Number two, a biblical position. And number three, a bad Ideology. What I mean by bad is it's not helpful. It's a not helpful ideology. And it's not, we're not talking about people. We're talking about the ideology that we need to challenge. What is it that we are called and need to challenge? Okay, so that's where we're going. It's gonna be, it's gonna be good. Okay, it's like a big living room, you know? Okay, let me pray. And then we'll go. Uh, Father, I just, I thank you that your word is true and it's a good word for humanity. It's, it's how things are for what it means to be truly human. And we 
know that in this brokenness, there are all kinds of painful realities. And I just, I want to pray as we walk through this, you would give us your love, your heart, your convictions. God, you have, through so many scriptures, told the writers of, the, of these letters that there will be lots of deceitful teaching. There will be lots of people who want to have itching ears so that they can live out ways that don't honor, they, that we, we, we just need to be aware. We need to be mindful. We need to watch our life and our doctrine closely, as your word says. And that sometimes doesn't feel loving. And so we have this tension all the time. And I just want to ask Holy Spirit for your help, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd use the, use me. Use, I pray for a greater measure of the spiritual gift of teaching. And I pray, Father, specifically for our teenagers, I pray you'd give them supernatural ability to hear. And I just, I pray for us. I pray, uh, Lord, we would not feel as though we're in this room to like, you know, see if we like this sermon, but as those ready to go out into the world as missionaries, help us to feel equipped, help us to feel Lord, that there's an urgency on in our city of, of the lost. And I just, I pray for your grace. I need, we need you so much in this. And I just, I pray you would help us repent where we have breathed and have embraced this ideology. I pray we'd repent, we would turn from it Help us to remember the context of this sermon. This is your household. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so a better understanding. Let's, I want to begin, especially in this sermon, defining a few terms as we seek to understand transgender, more specifically gender dysphoria. So I got my suit jacket, so I'm going to get a little professory, you know. So I'm going to clarify two things, okay? First, uh, when most use the word sex or biological sex, we know typically they're speaking to the anatomy of being male and female, which is acknowledged at birth, right? When a child is born, the doctors acknowledge that you're having a boy or you're having a girl. That's what we mean by uh, sex or biological sex. When, the, when today in our culture, when we use the word gender, it usually refers to the psychological, social, cultural aspects of being male and female. So, so gender identity, gender and gender identity are used interchangeably all the time, but gender identity today in, in the way the language is used is how you experience yourself or think of yourself as feminine or masculine. So it's, it's your feeling and experience of it. That's your gender identity. So we need to get the right terms so we're, you guys can hear when I'm speaking into these things that we're saying we're on the same page. The second thing is transgender is not the same as intersex. So here's a definition. Intersex is a physical condition affecting a very small percentage of people whose chromosomes, genitals, or gonads do not allow, allow them to be distinctively identified as male or female at birth. So it's, it's not clear what's on the outside. In fact, most intersex uh, people as they grow older, they do not identify as transgender. Interestingly, they, they, they choose a male or female gender to be, but we, we, we just have to know. 
So, so transgender, because this is the topic we're talking about, and then we'll get into all the stuff we said. Transgender has to do with, again, how people think or feel. So uh, they're, they are born either biologically male or female, but their feelings about their gender don't fit with their sex. So the word transgender uh, is an umbrella term for the many ways in which people might experience or, this is important, express or live out their gender identities. So they, they would do that differently, obviously, from those whose gender identity is congruent with their biological sex. Now, there's a, there's a wide range of experiences. So every person's story is very unique. Their journey is intensely personal. Uh, some feel they're both male and female. Others don't identify as either gender. There'll be differences in the both the nature of how they feel male and female and the intensity. Um, there will be differences in, in how they felt it during childhood. Interestingly, 80% of those children, and now we have, finally have some studies out there, 80% of children who experience these strong feelings find that they disappear completely during adulthood or even after puberty. For others, there's this prolonged sense of disharmony and it causes great distress. So that's the umbrella of transgender. When we talk about the specific dysphoria, we're talking about gender dysphoria. That's what I wanted to talk about because I think the church needs to really understand this really, really well. So on, on this, Mark Yearhouse, he's a professor of Christian thought and mental health practice at Regent University. He defines this Gender dysphoria refers to, it's on the screen, experiences of gender identity in which a person's psychological and emotional sense of themselves as female, for instance, does not match or align with their birth sex as male or vice versa. So when a study, I'll have all these notes on the, uh, on the CG handouts if you want you know, more quotes. Uh, when a study was done of 32 transgender, so uh, male to female, so born biologically male, but experience a female gender identity. When asked, how are you experiencing gender? One said this, gender dysphoria for me is a hiss of an old time radio, a sound which can be ignored with some effort in order to hear the broadcast, but cannot be extinguished without pulling the plug. It has always been there long before I understand what was making the noise. Another, this won't be on the screen, says, it was like a train bearing down on me and I'm on the tracks and I, I'm, I'm either going to stand on the tracks or I'm gonna make some profound changes in my life. Now this person went on to you know, cross gender identify more full time to manage the dysphoria. But I, I begin this way because this is for some a real and true experience. And as you can imagine, which I don't think we can, this would be enormously difficult. And, and you know, the word distress is really accurate. Um, in, in that same study and others, there are milestones or indicators of this. And I wanna show you this so that we can at least see we're on the same page. Um, first, for awareness of gender dysphoria, uh, it usually happened around age six. That they're beginning to feel, I think you have that, they're beginning to feel kind of these uh, emotions or, or uneasy 
sense of like they don't they don't fit the typical like you know boyhood womanhood. Um, there's unusual play. Then there's internal confusion. It sinks really deep around age 11. There's often social external consequences, uh, huge emotional di- dissonance, uh, gender variant behaviors. By age 18, there's a deep sense of something's really wrong with me. I need to do research. Uh, this is where usually around this age, they're wanting to become on the outside what they feel they are on the inside. By age 27, there's an attempt to figure this all out. They seek counseling. They cross-dress um, to manage the dysphoria. And then disclosure. This is actually the most painful when you're dealing with it pastorally or as a friend. Uh, this is when they, and, and when um, suicide is, is at its worst, is when they tell a spouse, so around 35, where they just, they, they express this is who I am. And the last stage is resolutions. Some have no resolutions. Some have, you know, help medically and then trans, transitioning. So let me say this. There is no way for us to understand and no way for me to explain what gender dysphoria feels like. What's even more sad is there is a higher rate of suicide, 41% higher. That's seven to eight times higher than the average. When asked what kind of support would you have liked from the church, most, all, actually all, could not find a safe church home. One person answered, someone to cry with me rather than just denounce me. Hey, it's scary to see God not rescue someone from cancer or schizophrenia or gender identity disorder, but learn to allow your compassion to overcome your fear and repulsion. There's a story I read of a 16-year-old who, who, um, born female but thought she was male, was like in such distress, came to her parents and youth pastor and the parents didn't know what to do, so they went to the youth pastor, and the youth pastor was like, this is willful disobedience. And so they were just on her, like, you're, you're just trying to create a, you know, a, what are you trying to do? And then they went to another pastor, and he said, yeah, this is, not, this is not God's design. And then he went to this Christian counselor, and the Christian counselor said, you didn't choose this, did you? And she just wept. And then her parents wept. And they just went on to, to really understand this is a, a big deal. So our response to those experiencing gender dysphoria is we love you and you matter and you matter to God. Come on. And we want to listen and we would love to hear how we can help because you are made in God's image. So the church needs to know on this issue, we're not talking about sexual orientation. We confuse this with homosexuality because it's been lumped in with the LGBTQ agenda. When we're talking about transgender issues, we need to switch gears from the discussion of sexual orientation. This is not an arousal. This is not sexual attractions. This is not uh, mainly that kind of experience. 
This is not drag queens whose studies show are mainly heterosexual men who cross-dress for entertainment or erotic purposes. The Bible does speak to that sin. Deuteronomy 22, five says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things is an, ob- is an abomination to the Lord your God. Peter Harland at, at University of Cambridge explains, as an Old Testament professor, to dress after the manner of the opposite sex was to infringe the natural order of creation which divided humanity into male and female. That distinction was fundamental to human existence and could not be you know, blurred in any way. So when it comes to gender dysphoria, the Christian response cannot be, this is willful disobedience and you need to repent or pray it away. In the same way, we talked about same-sex attraction. So if you missed that sermon, go back to it. The response is, I can't imagine what you're going through. And I, and I know you didn't choose this. What we've been talking about when it comes to the fall, and this is kind of how you're explaining this, is can I share with you what I believe some of your pain is rooted in? And I'm so sorry, we, we believe, and we talked about this, so go back to that sermon if you've missed it in, in creation and brokenness, but, but the world has been subjected to futility, to frustration. It doesn't work properly. It's out of joint. The, bodies, the Bible says here, I'll put on the screen, Romans 8, 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what's true of creation in general is true of our bodies. I encourage you again to go back to that, but the Bible teaches our bodies are a part of the physical order that's been subjected to this frustration. So we see this frustration in a variety of ways. As one put it well, some face relentless health issues, others contend with the whole range of body image struggles, still more experienced body dysphoria, feeling as though they were trapped in the wrong kind of body. All believers, and I think you can identify with this, all believers, I would say live with the dissonance between what we are and what we feel ourselves to be. Have you ever had that? Like, I feel like, where is this coming from? This is not me. We all have, this is, no one has an entirely straightforward relationship with their own body. In the same way we said, no one has an entirely straightforward relationship with their sexual preferences. It's just the way of life in this world. And while it's true that anyone can see this problem, Christians can uniquely account for it. In our original sin, learn that language really, really well. Not just the word sin, because that doesn't help all the time, but learn how you explain the brokenness. There are things God calls us to, to deny which feel natural, right? It feels natural to wanna live without God. It feels natural for our kids to wanna go their own. It just feels natural. It doesn't mean it's right. As followers of Jesus, we're asking, and if you're talking to a follower of Jesus, we're asking who are we becoming by what we give ourselves to, our, our ideologies, our beliefs, not why or what, but who are you becoming in believing this world system? The Bible shows us that sin has caused profound alienation. First from God, 
from our lives to God, which, which Jesus reconciles, giving us a new heart, but it also uh, and alienates us from each other. Relationships are hard, but we're, listen, we're also alienated from ourselves. What was meant to be whole and in, in integrated, our mind, body, and spirit is now deeply fractured. So we don't feel aligned in ourselves. As Sam Alberry put it, knowing these things should make us compassionate. He says, we of all people should appreciate why, for we of all people understand the true death of what's wrong with this world. Our churches should be the places people feel most safe trying to articulate their own sense of not being right. So our call to the transgender person who's experiencing gender dysphoria is to say, I love you, God loves you, you matter to me, you matter to God. I wanna learn, I wanna learn, what was it like? It sounds like you're like, you know, in chapter five of your life. Can you, can you tell me like what chapter one and two and three were like? Like you got, we, these are, so this is our, our response. Okay, so here's a question, what causes gender dysphoria? Okay, simple answer, we don't know. Now, this is really important when we get to the third point. We don't know. Scientifically, there's no agreement around it. Uh, one theory, I'll give you one, well, I'll give you just one theory, just watching our clock, is, is called the brain sex theory. So they say within two months in the fetus, because the sexual differentiation of the genitals and sexual differentiation of the brain, they take place at two different stages of fetal development, what they say is perhaps there was some discrepancy such that the external genitals develop as a male, for example, while the brain develops as female. So that's one theory. They don't know. And the evidence of this view is, is just far from conclusive. It's they're trying to find out what's happening. Another theory uh, goes to hormones and a hormonal theory. There's another one that believes, you know, kind of the more, uh, just they why don't put a dress on your kid. Other people believe like it's nurture, psychological environment, childhood. Um, but here's the thing: after a thorough survey of the arguments of both sides, and you can do your own research, so don't you don't have to believe me. But one expert scientist just, and they all say this eventually: we don't know what causes gender dysphoria. It's a rare experience. Stats are hard to find because oftentimes you don't hear about them or they don't go to these clinics where they are doing stats. But professional diagnoses of gender dysphoria are rare, uh, as in one in 13,000 males, one in 34,000 females. Now, those who have a subjective transgender uh, you know, experience, whether they wanna, because of, we'll get to in a second, maybe they feel a little bit feminine, a little bit male, so those who identify as transgender is one in 300. Um, have some kind of what they would call gender confusion. They're not sure if they feel more feminine or female. Now, I don't think this is the elephant in the room. I don't think the, what I just said is the elephant in the room. What's underneath those tectonic plates that I'm gonna talk about in a second, that's the elephant. And we hit this in sermon one and two but I'll hit it again, but before I do, let's go to more Bible. So here's a biblical position, okay? What does the Bible say about gender? 
First, I'll just summarize it. The Bible says the male and female binary and marriage are a part of God's good creation. So the world's gonna say that gender is oppressive, gender, gender uh, you know, distinctions are oppressive. Let's get rid of gender altogether. The Bible is, says the exact opposite, that God made male and female and they're good. So from the beginning, God made human beings male and female, despite the difficulty we may have on extremely rare occasions of determining a person's sex. Jesus, so let's go with Jesus. So Jesus, and we've been in this text before because this is probably one of the best places to go when you're talking around a lot of these issues is Matthew 19. So in, you, we've taught on this exegetically in particular because it refers to divorce. But what Jesus says is this, he affirms both male and female roles in marriage. So he's quoting from Genesis one and two, which we'll get to, but he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. So Jesus affirms the goodness of male and female. But then if you look at your Bible, if you have it open, look at what he says in verse 12. He says this, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this receive it. So notice in the same breath, Jesus affirms in creation is good in God making us both male and female. But there are some who are living in a fallen world to no fault of their own, who for them, it's not that simple who don't fit one of those two categories. So you just need to see what I'm seeing here. He acknowledges that some will be born without the sexual anatomic kit that goes with their gender identity. They, they may be genetically male, but don't have genetic organs to, do, to go with that identity. So there are some born male and female, but he says there are exceptions. So why is that helpful? It's just helpful because he's saying that this exists is true. There's an affirmation of male and female, and he's saying there are exceptions. There are, although he values gender, being male and female, there are some who feel like they're stuck. Now, to go where Jesus quotes from, look at Genesis, look at with me, and I'll have this up here. I'll have some like Hebrew words up here, but... Uh, Genesis 2 and 5, it says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In Genesis 5, we read, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male, so both genders glorify the character of God. Actually, both, both genders bring out the best in each other in a complementarian, like the Trinity kind of way. He created them and he blessed them and named them man and they were created. So there's an implication of this from male to female to man and woman, husband, wife, that a, personal, that a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender, what gender they in fact are, and certain key gender roles should they be taken up. So human males grow into men and potentially husbands and fathers 
and human females grow into women and potentially wives and mothers. That is a good thing. It, it, it's this set of binary connections that makes human marriage possible. And it's God's original intent for his design, which means as the resurrection attests to, our bodies are essential part of our true selves. Our bodies are essential in determining and revealing who we truly are. So men and women, you, got, you know this, are different at the deepest levels of their being. Our chromosomes are different. Our brains are different. Our voices are different. Our body shapes are different. Our body strengths are different. Our reproductive systems are different. The design for what our bodies are structured and destined for are different. And these designs bear witness to differences that reflect God's creative will for humanity. We ought to echo the words of the psalmist where he says in Psalm 139, you created my inmost being. Like you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So there's no scale of maleness or femaleness. There's no percent of, of this and this. Rather, a person's biological sex reveals and determines their actual gender and certain potential, this is really key, gender roles. So let me say that again. You're like, you're using a lot of big sentences. I am. A person's biological sex reveals and determines their actual gender and certain potential gender roles. And there are exceptions. So there's creation and then there are exceptions. This is the created design. So let's go to number three. Now remember, when we're when we're when we say bad ideology to challenge, we're not talking about uh, us versus them. We are talking about what's at stake in, in right belief. We're talking about um, worldview. So why is, why is this so complex? Why is transgender issue so aggressive? Well, it, as we said before, it begins with what's underneath this world, the, the how do I explain it? I'll just read my notes maybe. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the worship of the authentic self. So let me say it this way. Um, John Stuart Mill, he's the founding father of modern Western liberalism. He wrote this, over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. So our worship today believes the personal meaning must be found within ourselves. It must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. So, you know, our kids breathe the air that that the way to get your sense of worth is to discover it, pull that out and be true to that true self. That's your authentic self. So no one has the right to question or challenge any individual's choices or how they choose to define themselves. 
That's the, that's the narrative of this culture today. There's a, there's a desire to not wanna feel this is not okay. There's been a huge, and I don't have time to go through this, but in the 80s, a huge agenda put together, a whole book written with actual core values on how we need to normalize uh, homosexual behavior. We, we need to normalize all these things. And here's how we're gonna get there. We're gonna get into the media. We're gonna get into the education system. And, and they're doing it. You should, I'll, I'll send you a link on this. But what's, what's crazy about this is, is this is what's underneath. This is what makes us feel hard to navigate the elephants in the room because we are also against oppression. We are also against a lot of the things that this movement is pushing it for, but also adding a, a wrong ideology that says there is no God, you're God, and no one can tell you how to live your life. The true authentic self is who you want to be. So, so here, let me say it this way. If we are free to define our own identity without being bound by these old conventions, then that should it not include the outdated constructing binary male or female understanding of gender. So one of the slogans of the transgender agenda is anatomy isn't destiny. In other words, your anatomy needn't determine your gender and developments in medicine and surgery mean that your anatomy needn't determine your sex. So you're free even from nature. Nature's oppressing you. So not even our body should be allowed to restrict us in our self-definition. On this, Judith Lorber, a radical feminist, writes that she longs for the day when gender distinctives have effectively disappeared, when we no longer ask boy or girl in order to start gendering an infant, when the information is as irrelevant as the color of a child's eyes. Only then will men and women be socially interchangeable and really equal, and when that happens, there will no longer be any need for gender. Facebook uh, recently started allowing users to customize their gender. You can, there's 71 options, 71 options. And listen to what one employee of Facebook at the time said when, when they rolled this out. We wanna help users to be their true, authentic selves. So that's the idea, that is the elephant in the room. You just have to know that. You have to learn how to use language to talk about that. Is this our true selves? Where do you get yourself sense of worth, okay? So here's where, here's where it gets really tricky for us. Because we have real people with gender dysphoria describing real experiences, plus a tectonic view of you need to be true to your authentic self, then we're gonna create this ideology in here, try to set them free and push this into the entire world by saying gender is fluid. Are you tracking with me on that? So here's what, this is the biggest title of any person's job I've ever seen. Here's what Diane Aaron Seft, the Director of Mental Health at the Child and Adolescent Gender Center at Beinhoff Children's University of California, San Francisco says. This will be on the screen, talking about children who are experiencing gender dysphoria, but she adds, and watch the worldview come in. They refuse to pin themselves down as male or female, Maybe they are boy slash girl or a gender hybrid or gender ambidextrous, moving freely between genders, living somewhere in between or creating their own mosaic of gender identity and expression. As they grow older, they might identify themselves as agender 
or gender neutral or gender queer. Each one of these children is exercising their gender creativity and we can think of them as our gender creative children. She goes on, young transgender people are our best teachers in alerting us to the reality. So this is where the worldview pops in to the reality that gender exists primarily between our ears, in our brains and minds, and not necessarily by what is between our legs, our genitalia, or in our accompanying XX or XY chromosomes, as many mistakenly prone to believe. So the issue is not gender dysphoria. It's what's underneath, like what's in our school systems, which is pushing this, stems not from the experience of one in 13,000 males or one in 34,000 females, but from this ideology, we're, we're wanting to set the authentic self, who you truly are, who you feel who you really are, which is Gnosticism just rebirthed in today's world. So. To, to make a point, I want to show you a video. So here's a video, and then I'll keep preaching. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I, I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions, just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I, it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it, yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. 
If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you were six foot five or Chinese or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? All right, I think that's a great video on this point, and here's why. He's not mocking a transgender person. What, what he's saying is can we, as non-gender dysphoric people, see the logic connections in what we're doing in this? And this is where it's messy for us. This is where it really feels like an elephant in the room because our message to the transgender community is you're loved, like you're welcome. We wanna have, I think it's important to have family bathrooms for those who, this is really tough. And we need to say, tell us what it's like, how can we help? But especially teenagers, so if you're over here, you, there can be a social pressure for a child or a teen who's experiencing a disconnect because you've also been taught now that there's so much gender bending and your, your gender's in your mind. So you add that to the confusion and you have this pressure around you. Um, actually, I, did, I, I read one research that said there's more pressure on teenagers to identify as bisexual because if they say they're heterosexual, they're kind of outcast today, which is crazy. But you're you're now pressured to find a scale of how masculine or feminine you feel. And, and it's, it's, it's just crushing. It's, you, and so here's what's gonna happen. Because there can be this pressure, whether it's coming from media, education, or anywhere else, to define yourself according to your felt gender rather than biological sex too early, and scientific research shows this, the majority of children and teens who transition from one gender to the other, they transition back by adulthood. We're not helping. We need, we need to be so careful not to intervene. And as most doctors are saying, the doctors are also on the same side of much of our society going, we, there's not enough research out here to do this, but they have the same pressure to perform these surgeries, to give these hormonal things, because the wider culture today says the best way to help someone 
is if there's a disconnect between their mind and their body is to allow the body to fit the mind rather than align the mind to fit the body. Because the true self's in your mind, but look right at me. If you sit back for a moment and take an issue like anorexia, we'd say actually it's very important that you don't simply align the body to fit the mind. That's the point of that video. So it's, we are living in Gnosticism. You read about this in like the early church and you go, I wonder what that was like. That was like today, you're in it. You breathe its air. So what do we do? What do we do? We have to challenge this. But first we love people. The goal on this side of heaven, which is short for most of us, is that God has come into your life. You've had a living encounter with Jesus. He's become your treasure. He's become your purpose. He's become your life. He's become your worship. So our greatest goal is that people would encounter Jesus himself. That's your goal. We love people. We, we, we speak into where identity's formed. We go back to what we talked about. We believe identity has been received and it's being redeemed. We know we go to places like 2 Corinthians 5, it goes like, look, I don't know what you're going through and I love you, but the Bible says if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. I just want you to know that. What you're experiencing sucks, but I'm with you and there's, there's a God who loves you. And your biggest issue isn't some of what you're feeling. It's unbelief. You don't believe he's there. We plead to Christ. That's our response. And we affirm gender binary. We, we affirm male and female. We have a book out there for uh, kids who are two, three, or four that talk about this. If you're a parent, get the book. If you have a 12-year-old who's asking questions, like we said last week, you need to become an expert in this. We speak into gender as something that's not fluid. The science is not clear. That is all subjective. That is all how someone feels. There's no evidence that you're a percentage anywhere. You can't have that evidence. You could only go on the evidence of gender dysphoric experience. And then you push that in, add the authentic self, and you have Gnosticism where we are today. Soji is not helping the transgender community in the best way. It's not loving to tell our young people their gender is fluid. It's not helpful to the transgender community. It's not. Talk to them. If you talk to the trans, like, do it. If you talk to them, what I've heard most commonly is I don't want anything to do with this. I just want to live my life. And if I need to express myself to get through the day, through my dysphoria, I'll dress different. Uh, you know, outerwear, innerwear, but they are not on this horse. They just want to live their own lives. They want to be normal. And, and I mean, if, if you guys were there, when I mean, it was front page Vancouver, like now a parental right is being taken away and it's considered a family, I forget the exact term by the, by the court, but a, it's a criminal offense now to, to not uh, refer to your daughter as the expression that she wants to be referred to as. Like, it, it's just, it's, it's not helpful to say that gender is an oppressive tool that needs to be deconstructed. So what do we do? Well, I do think we need to voice our objections. Th this is one hill we need to voice on. Um, I, I think it's okay to be with your principal and teachers, share your love for the transgender community, your heart for your kids. 
ask them where that you can find scientific evidence that gender exists in the mind outside of looking at gender dysphoria. Like, help them just just say this is not helpful. Because here's the other thing. I'll say this. Transgender people, and you can ask them, they are not against being male or female. They actually affirm maleness in females. They just feel like they're in the wrong body. They want to be female if they're stuck in a man's body. They're not saying gender needs to go away or that we need to find the fluid middle point. Sorry. Um, we also need, and this is a big one, this is a slap on all of our hands. I think we need to guard against stereotypes. This is where we get into a lot of confusion. So for example, my daughter loves to get muddy and play football and hang out with guys. If she was told you might be more percentage masculine than feminine, you should choose to identify more masculine because the stereotype is that if you get muddy and play football, you're a man. That is wrong. That's not biblical. Do you know who's dancing and like playing ballet? David, the most mighty king ever. He's got the harp out, the lyre. He's dancing. He's twirling. He's singing. He's expressing. Like the gender stereotypes in North America are different. Just so you know, in Japan, they're different in Indonesia. Like they're they're just different. But this is a huge. We can't get rid of these gender because we've gender stereotypes. Do we think women should have equal pay? Of course. But like, okay, just calm down. <laughs> Second thing I'll say is is this. We need to affirm at the same time and instill gender-defined roles in the Bible. So the Bible does speak that boys should own sacrificial responsibility and resist passivity. Right? This is a whole different sermon, but there is a biblical femininity that has to do more with roles than expression of like, color and dance and it has to do with how God's designed what you don't have in the Bible and you can try to find it but you don't you don't have a lot of rigid rules about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman you have responsibilities and roles husband wife father mother so because we have this the boys who love dolls and prefer ballet to football as they're gay which some of us older people need to repent of because shame on us for that. And, you know, the girly girls, you know, prefer Barbies and they don't climb trees and they just make tea. It's not okay. Scripture nowhere gives a clear, narrow set of rules to what a man or woman should be like. We all experience the curse of the fall in bodily ways. But to answer the problems in our body along with the answer to any of our problems is never going to be found in ourselves. We need to always point to who God is, what he's done, and who we are in him. 